0: Hi, I'm Dave Raymond, the original Philly fanatic, but also keynote speaker and author of The Power of Fun. And this is one-on-one with ADC Partners.
1: Hi, this is Dave Elmi of ADC Partners. And let's just get this out there. Dave Raymond is a giant green Muppet. Or at least he was a Muppet. Maybe still kind of a Muppet? You see, for 16 years, Dave Raymond was the Philly Fanatic, one of the most famous mascots in all of sports. In his time inside the costume, he more or less invented the concept of the modern mascot and made characters an indispensable part of a sports team's operation. In our conversation, we review the Fanatic's origins how Raymond developed the mascot's personality, and discussed some memorable run-ins with both players and managers. It's a hilarious conversation at times, but it's also an incredibly poignant one, as Dave also recalls how the fanatic helped rescue him from some of the lowest points of his life. The lessons he learned in those moments continue to shape his approach to spreading the value of happiness today. You were working... With the Philadelphia Phillies in the late seventies, when uh, the team approached you about the idea of becoming the Philly fanatic, and I'm wondering, Dave Raymond, if you can recall what that moment was like when the front office approached you. I mean, I don't think you were with the team thinking, "Can't wait to be a mascot." You probably had other objectives in mind. Can you recall what that moment like and stepping into the costume for the first time?
0: Oh my God, can I recall? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, well, you know, I have my father's in my ear yeah. when he, when he helped me get this internship in 76 and 77 with the Phillies say, do whatever they tell you to do, oh, you know, prove, prove your value, you know, and then, and then it will work out. Dad. Yeah. Right. Well, that it, I didn't have a, I had that firmly implanted in my brain yeah. two summers of working the greatest job I thought I could ever have thinking, Hey, I, I'm going to, I'm going to hook up with the Philadelphia Phillies. I've got a chance for a full-time career in, in sports And then there was a gap year. It was a two-year internship. So in 78, I didn't think I was coming back. So they called me at my fraternity house and they said, hey, do you want your job back? We need you to stay for all the games and we're going to pay you to stay for all the games. I'm like, "Uh, okay, what do you want me to do? And very quickly they said, we need you to go to New York and get fitted for the costume. (laughs) And And I went, what, wait. And they said, David, just go to New York and get fitted for the costume.
1: The fact that you're in the fraternity house makes it feel like a cut scene from Animal House in well, some it, way, right?
0: <laughs> and believe me, my fraternity Sigma Phi Epsilon was was close to that. We had we had 17 starting football players. Oh, in sweet Jesus! And so so we uh, we enjoyed our time. Uh, right, we were. We were relatively good. <laughs> There's been some mistakes along the way, but um, it well, was- Well, I appreciate
1: you didn't use air quotes to say relatively. Anyway. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I, I I mean it. We're uh, still very close with all my brothers, so uh, okay. no, no one has been sent away. But uh, off to New York. Right. But I wanted to get the heck out of Dodge and go work for the Phillies. So I'm right. like, yeah, I said, yes. Yeah. So I, I did. I, I went to New York and that was the start of it. And, um, and I saw the brilliance of enlightened leadership because- you know, Bill Giles, who's the president emeritus of the Phillies now, and he helped build the Astrodome. I mean, okay. Wow. He's got some tremendous uh, chops in terms of what was earlier called ballpark entertainment, which is now the business of, of sports promotions or value-added entertainment. And he, he was brilliant and fearless and, and the ownership at the time cared nothing about that side of the business because they had Bill doing it. They, mm-hmm. So the Carpenter family was just building a great baseball team and, and proved to be doing, to be good at that. Um, so, you know, Bill has this idea that nobody thinks is a good idea. I'm the youngest <laughs> person on the, in the organization. He said, Oh, Dave, uh, when, when he's been interviewed about this, he said, well, David was a little bit of a smart ass. And I'm thinking like, wait, no, I wasn't. I was, I was Tubby Raymond's son, friend of the Phillies ownership. And I didn't want to make any waves. I just wanted to have a job. And and so and, and do whatever it takes to get there. Yeah. So Bill understands that as he gives Frank Sullivan, you know, my boss. So Bill was my boss's boss, but Frank Sullivan is the one that called me. And he was in, you know, ballpark entertainment. And he just said, no, you know, and he had this little high-pitched voice. And I would have done anything for Frank. I loved him. And so I realized later that I was the one that was stupid enough to say yes to this, which is what they were looking for. They weren't looking for any talent. They just go, who's going to say yes to this bad idea? Who's
1: that eager? Had you ever seen the costume before you got fitted? Did you have any no, idea no. what it even looked like?
0: Nothing. I went and and I am, I walked into the in West 39th Street in the garment district. I walked into Geppetto's puppet studio, and this was run by a woman Who was one of Jim Henson's original designers? Oh, wow. And and this is what Bill did. He he actually called Jim Henson, got him on the phone. And Jim said, You need to go see Bonnie. And I'm meeting Bonnie. She created Statler and Waldorf, you know, the two old men that argued in the balcony. That's the greatest. And so she measures me. and, And I said, What do you want me to do? And I thought, you know, there was gonna be some sort of an interview or something. And she just, you know, she was dealing with just a human form. That's all she cared about. She right, made- I just need your inseam, man. Yeah, exactly. And she, and she said, get out of here. And that's when I saw the drawing that she and Bill had worked on. So hard to get this drawing to where both of them liked it. Were you and- like,
1: what the hell?
0: No, I went, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a Muppet. That's. <laughs> I mean, I was just completely young and, and wide eyed and <laughs> you know uh, not cynical in any way. I'm like, okay, we, here we go.
1: You know? Um, and so they've measured you for it right there and you yeah. like, and you, what did you put the costume under your arm and headed to Philly? No, I, I <laughs> left
0: and, and the costume wasn't finished until yeah, the okay. morning, the morning I was supposed to wear that evening. I saw it for the first time, tried it on for the first time, the same day, April 25th of 1978 that I was supposed to go out and, and, um, you know, again, enlightened Holy leadership, smokes. they gave me no direction and yeah. on purpose because they go, well, look, we're not announcing this. We're not telling people we're going to do it. This character is just going to show up. And at the time, the, um, the slogan, they all did these slogans yeah, and it was, it was be a Philly fanatic. Okay. Um, literally speaking to the fans be, be right. a Philly fanatic. And so the default name was the Philly fanatic and they made a little pennant that said Philly fanatic on it. And and I did. I just ran out there and and it was Bill who said, look, you can't make a mistake as long as you're having fun. And and then I, when I went running out of his office, excited that I was going to be a Muppet, I was getting paid and my job was to have fun. And I was a college student. Right. He yelled at me, G-rated fun, David. <laughs> oh, Calm so the heck he, down.
1: He, he at least knew the baseline.
0: <laughs> yeah, this was- in, in in the old adage and i'm doing air quotes now to be okay quote, very good yeah uh you know uh chicks dig muppets you know so <laughs> so that he was trying I've, to he I was trying to let that. me know look you know go have fun g-rated
1: yeah. fun this is for the family so david and- i have to ask you point blank I, I mean you could have run out of this out of the tunnel in the costume in almost any city in the united states and there probably would have been an interesting reaction but you ran out on the field in philadelphia whose fans well, are not exactly known as being open-armed when welcoming personalities i mean you walk out onto the field what's the reaction
0: yeah well well let let the i gotta give you the the preamble there is okay let's pre-ambling. be honest there are knuckleheads in every single stadium in the world not just in philadelphia unfortunately it's become our tagline you know like you see some nonsense that goes on in a stadium in LA and the broadcasters will say, Oh, I didn't know we were in Philadelphia. (laughs) So so it has, and and my answer is you're not, you're in LA. It's (laughs) happening everywhere. It just, we get tagged with it. Fine. We did throw snowballs at Santa Claus. Okay. But yeah,
1: that was, that's sort of the apocryphal story,
0: but Santa Claus didn't have a good day. Okay. So (laughs) he deserved it. Yeah, exactly. If you show up in Philadelphia (laughs) and you don't do well, we're going to let you know. We're going to let you know. All right. So just to clarify. All right. And the response was 100% positive. There wasn't one negative reaction. No one said, get the heck out of my way, you big fat green thing. <laughs> they, they all just immediately, and of course, the fanatic was wearing the Phillies pinstripes. So right, you of you're a member of the family. Right. Um, and it was absolute 100% acceptance. So and from, then,
1: from, get, from get go, from jump, er, er, acceptable.
0: Yep. And I, and and now part of it was, uh, again, I was allowed because no one had an idea what to do. I was mm-hmm. allowed to go make it up. So I had in my I had all kinds of uh, you know, I was a Three Stooges fan. I was a silent movie fan, but I was a huge Warner Brothers cartoons fan. And oh, okay. I Daffy Duck right. used to bounce off the walls, then sit next to you, give you a big wet kiss and then run on to the next. Right. And that was in my head. Well, when I got out there, it's the first time. You know, I just worn the costume for maybe twenty minutes before you know, in the morning, and then yep. that evening I ran out. Well, I actually wanted to jump over this railing, and I—I I not purposely—I fell flat on the fanatics' face, and everybody roared. I'm like, yeah. oh, okay. Well, I have to fall down, and it, it, it's just the the enlightened and leadership position is, if you trust, you give them guidance you trust, you let them go. When there's a mix up, you go, okay, what happened? Why did you do that? Oh, I'll quit doing that. No, no, no. Why did you do that? Do the fans like it? Yes. Okay. Keep doing it. And that that's what Bill did. Bill and I collaborated for the next six months mm-hmm. uh, through the rest of that baseball season, just saying, Hey, oh, that was cool. What, what, what happened there? I, I'm I'm getting a complaint about this one. Why are you doing that? And then we and over in, in just a few months, I felt like I knew the personality because I had created it. So I was given the freedom just to create it. So I and it and it worked. And and the fans didn't look at it as a marketing ploy. To get it was that. more
1: authentic than that.
0: Yes, I it, here's some idiot that made this costume in his garage, <laughs> and he's showing up. Oh yeah, let's do that. That's you know
1: awesome. that guy's a fanatic when he's running around in that costume in Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, at, a, at a baseball game midday. And I find it, first of all, I find great hope for all the people who are out there whose parents have ever told them, you know, we watch all that TV, it'll rot your brain. It was literally <laughs> training you for the role that you were going to be taking with the team. We're going back to the Looney Tunes and the Three yeah. Stooges and things like that. I, but it does, it did give you this opportunity to create the personality for the fanatic and and road test it. And like in real time, what's working what's not working. Did the team give you they, a lot of support in that and said just go with it? And, yes, it they happens? did.
0: And, but, so there was beauty in in now the the, the chicken had already given inspiration to Philly's right. executives who saw him on the West Coast right. to come and tell Bill we needed to do this. And it okay. took him some convincing yep. and then he jumped into it full force and that's, you know, and then then I've told you what happened between him and me, but but the chicken because we weren't in a social media age, so right. only the, only the the players And some fans that, you know, went out to San Diego and saw him knew what was going on. So there was no roadmap. I was making relationships with players and umpires and getting their buy-in because they saw how much the fans liked it. And and so like Doug Harvey, his he was one of the premier National League umpires at the time. Tall, gray hair. He looked like Moses down from the mount. He and they nicknamed perfect umpire. Yep. They nicknamed him God because you never, <laughs> you never said anything against uh, yeah, Doug, yeah, yeah. and Doug actually brought me into the the umpires room very early in my career and said, "Hey, kid, I like you. I hate that chicken because he <laughs> he brings out an eye chart and and eyeglasses and he makes fun of us as as umpires. So here's my deal with you: as long as you don't make fun of us as umpires, but you have fun with us as with an us. authority as an authority figure." Yeah then we'll be good. And if we talk about doing something and then you start walking towards me after we talked about this and I decide I don't want to do it, I'm going to give you the timeout <laughs> sign and you walk away <laughs> I'll, from I'll it. I'll let you know. Yeah, and and I just, I honored that. And then, yeah. the, and then I gave the umpires a lot of free stuff. You know, yeah. all the fanatic gear they needed for uh, their yeah. nephews yeah, or, yeah. or kids. I've and seen then, people do
1: things for free t-shirts that yeah. boggle the mind. Yeah. <laughs> it is a constant right it is a constant and so they i became
0: friendly with them as i did with the visiting baseball players even more so than my relationships with the phillies i had in the early going stronger relationships with the visiting players because they looked forward to coming um yeah it was the newness that took a year that took a year to to establish those but then once in place it it was they were giving me ideas the fans were giving me ideas that they were funnier than i was and um, and the fanatic just became this conduit between the fans and the play on the field, because out of out of desperation, the first night I jumped on the field to get to a break area faster than walking all the way back up the steps because yeah. I had I thought this was going to be hard, but I felt, felt I was a good enough athlete to deal with it. But 20 minutes in, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I'm going to pass out. I'm dying. Yeah, and I jumped over the railing when the last out was made in an inning, and people went crazy. Like, oh my! God, he's on. It's like a physical streaker.
1: Comedy. It's yeah, like yeah. a streaker
0: that's jumped out on the field, and they they a were, big like, green
1: fuzzy it. streaker.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so that <laughs> you know, you did... now I realized, oh, I need to get on the field during off time and yeah, yeah. break. In an essence, figurative, literally, not literally, but figuratively, bringing the fans onto the field.
1: But I think it's really interesting too, because the mascot represents this interesting bridge between fan and team right you know the average fan doesn't get to interact with the players you know they don't get to interact with the managers they don't get to interact with the front office right the the mascot really becomes the focal point for where they can tangibly you know i'm gonna go a little bit off the deep end here you know tangibly pour their love for their team into this character that's Embodies that very team. Do you feel that when you're in the costume, like all that, all that love being poured out?
0: Well, the the energy, the positive energy. So I always tell people: imagine if every time you walked out your door, people were screaming your name and telling you that they love you, and (laughs) and and they come and hug you and say, "I want to take a picture." And in today's world, today's world, that's that's much easier than it was. And and I'll let's since we jumped in the deep end, let let me say something else about today's world. That's amazing about sports. Yeah, don't ever let anybody disqualify how important sports are in our emotional health Mm -hmm. and in our connection to our community. So there's many pictures I have of the fanatic standing in front of a a, a section of stands that's holding, you know, maybe three, four hundred to a thousand folks. Mm -hmm. And if you look at that, it is the cross section of everybody. There are men and women. There are large and small. There Mm -hmm. are young and old. There are people who identify differently. Mm-hmm. There are black, brown, and all colors, shapes, and sizes that are wearing the Phillies. Uh, you know the Phillies colors, and as far as the fanatic is concerned, you're a member of the family. Does not matter. It's a unifier. And the fanatic became, and not all of them do this. I mean, the ones who do this right, like Bill Giles and the Phillies did, that that character becomes a unifier, not just for. Uh, philadelphia phillies fans but for the city of philadelphia and continues to do so 43 years later yeah
1: it's just an amazing history yeah
0: yeah so so it is there is something really important going on um and it's all done through slapstick comedy right i mean it's it's it is the beauty of that type of entertainment but but there's a deeper connection happening and and it is a it is something to acknowledge
1: yeah sometimes as a long previously long suffering Boston Red Sox fan there was so much identity built up in the idea of that shared misery like everybody you oh gosh you understand you know you remember yeah. the ball going through Bill Buckner's legs and everything <laughs> like that now they've obviously been more successful of late but there is that shared experience that cuts across not just not just you know the 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 shared experience of being in the stadium together but it's generational too like my my son was born in California He has no connection to New England or the area, but because I'm a Boston Red Sox fan, he loves the Boston Red Sox fan. He's probably a bigger Boston Red Sox fan than I am. And that's, I think that shared experience that you talk about with sports and sort of representing this unique place in our society where people can gather and focus on this thing that's taking place in front of them, of which the mascot is the embodiment of that.
0: Yeah, and 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 it's generational, like you mentioned. And also, I think... The inner city dimension, inter cities, meaning mm-hmm. uh, additional cities. The connection from a Phillies fan to Boston or Cubs fans, it's it's the same path, it's the same story. So when I see somebody with a Cubs uh, hat or a Boston hat, I do not have the negative reaction when they're wearing a Yankees or a Mets hat. It just and and, <laughs> and so it's the competitive, it's the yeah. you know, it's the insecurity, uh, but those are those are two of my favorite cities to visit because they're great cities.
1: You brought up the idea that opposing players would um, sometimes in the relationships that you built with them as the fanatic, and they would give you ideas and things like that. But you've also had some run-ins with <laughs> people as the fanatic. Most memorably, Tommy Lazordo, I think, basically assaulted you, right? If, if that had happened on the street, you probably would have been taken away, you know, something like that. Do mascots have a line that they can cross? Is there is 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 there something that you had to protect against going too far? Sort of knowing the moment, or just sort of take all comers as it as it happens and unfolds. Well, no,
0: I think I think there's a you know in in terms of the business and 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 I teach you know performers how mm-hmm. to be good at this, and yeah, you have to be aware, especially in today's world, it's different. Yeah. I mean, there's things that I did and. Uh, uh, personality traits that I would draw from assumptions about folks uh, from, from different races and different categories and, and would have a a relationship with them that I probably would not do today. So it's Mm -hmm. it's always the current times, but the first and foremost, you must have, if you're going to go into some sort of a routine or some sort of engagement, you must know the person that you're working with. So from a fan perspective, I knew the fans. I was one of them. So I felt like I had a relationship with all of them. So right. I could approach a Phillies fan and really understand their heartbeat. Uh, same as if I could approach a Mets fan or a, a Yankees fan in, in our stadium was how most people were thinking I needed to react and interact with them. So you have to know your audience. In the case of Tommy Lasorda or Lonnie Smith and a couple of my historic run-ins, I knew those folks well. They appreciated me. Did mm-hmm. just tell me that. Told other people. Yeah. Uh, would consider me a good friend of theirs. Yet there could be a moment like anything that Tommy was fine with it until he
1: wasn't. And, until he wasn't.
0: Yeah. And and it, which <laughs> which was the easiest way to tell a a, a a 10 second story that normally takes twenty minutes. Right. Um, but I had a long term relationship going all the way back in nineteen seventy nine when the fanatic was over in Japan. Right. And and that was when baseball would have an American League All Star team with a manager and a bench coach, and the National League All Star team with a manager and bench coach. And our, our manager at that time was Tommy. I had didn't know him well, but he loved and respected my dad's
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: uh, history because you know Tommy grew up in Norristown and Delaware's, you know, just down the uh, the road from uh, Norristown, and and he would always ask me when he would see me, you uh, know, personally. Hey, how's your dad doing? I mean, yeah. and, and so I had. As good a relationship as anybody would have with somebody like Tommy Lasorda, who knew everybody was an ambassador of baseball, was a loved and hated figure, depending on your perspective and what color you wore Exactly. Right. right. And um, but it just so happened in this particular night, the, the Dodgers in, in, in that year were at the bottom okay. of their division. He was. Uh, suffering from a weight loss uh, uh, program between him and Earl hersheiser that was sponsored by Slim Fast, so he Ugh. couldn't get out of it. It was, it became, it was authentic, and then it became something that that. Uh, so he had a
1: hungry manager.
0: Yes, exactly. He was He's not he, a good he, setup. Right, and he tried to keep his jersey away from me to the point where I bought my own Lasorda uniform. <laughs> um and dressed the effigy you know the dummy in effigy of tommy and he just lost it and yeah. um and he a day he he tells you know i've heard him tell the story uh post event the yeah. way i always told it and i went wow it really did happen because you know you tell the story dozens and dozens of
1: times <laughs> you right you go
0: like this yeah, yeah you yeah, go yeah hey, nah, i minute. wasn't making that, that up. I thought it was yeah. <laughs> he did he had and he always prefaces with saying as he's pointing at me you see that kid? He's lucky he's alive. <laughs> so, <laughs> and meaning that it was the wrong place at the wrong time.
1: Oh, yeah. But for the... me.
0: But an iconic moment. Yeah, to millions of views on YouTube. And I I mean, I tell my audience right up front if I'm speaking and I'm, I'm outside of the Philadelphia region, I said, if you don't know the Fanatic, just when we're done talking, you'll know a little bit about him. But just Google search, search Lasorda versus the Fanatic and, and you'll get a real capsule you'll of get... what, what it was <laughs> like.
1: So. so you played the Fanatic for what 16 seasons? Correct. Sixteen seasons. Okay. So that's performing and interacting before fans at over twelve hundred home games. Right. That's 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 a lot. Yeah. right
0: uh, 60 million fans is, is 60 kind of, million um, fans. Yeah.
1: So what do you what did you learn about people <laughs> in that time? I mean can you I synopsis- hate people because <laughs> 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 I never wanted to do it again. It was 16 yeah. of the worst years of my life. It was it was you
0: know it was um half empty, half full. You yeah. you did so and in a nutshell, the easiest way to describe it is you see the worst of people who are want their kids so badly to to see Mickey Mouse. Yeah, okay. That they're willing to step over the kid in a way. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Them because they're not focused on that; they're focused on themselves and their children. Which I get that passion and that love. Yeah. So on that end, it's the it's the worst of it. But then you also are invited into, uh, and I'll give you the the worst. Um, the most difficult emotional piece that I did hundreds of times was you mm. walk into a hospital room right where a son or a daughter it may not and and in many cases did not survive that time but when you walk in the room you get this giant celebration and and a pat on the back to say thank you for giving my kid the best medicine they could have ever had and and that that is the beauty of it. So, but mixing it all together is what made it memorable and great. And and of course, in 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 my in my life, it 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 truly saved my life because I had this I had this ability to go into a flow state because yeah. I was getting paid to do it. And yeah. I realized that you know your brain during the most difficult times needs you need to give it a break. And when you're in that hotel or in that uh, hospital room with your child. You are guilty if you feel like you need a break because, but that's truly what needs to be done. And the person who's fighting that illness, they need a break too. Do and you it, feel
1: the weight of that responsibility in those moments? It's like, I'm here, I'm here to bring this emotion. Forward. I
0: was a, I was a passive bot by, bystander because yeah. truly I wasn't there and I was okay. living it as a character that was so bold. And so presumptive, and so much feeling like this is this is exactly where I need to be. That it was em, it was empowering. And yes, when I would reflect on it, it was like like any front care healthcare worker, they can tell you the same thing. They're in their mode, they're doing their work, they're they're doing their best uh, to help somebody feel better and to survive. And when it doesn't work out, they feel that afterwards. And it, right. it, it and it's and that is the issue. You've got to work on yourself how. How do I deal with that? But with me, it was mostly joy. Even yeah. in those situations, what I was experiencing through the fanatic was this joy and gratitude and thanks and love. It wasn't, you know, I I, I might've saw tears of joy in that moment, but they were tears of joy. Mm-hmm. And, and so I got all of the best of, of the worst of that moment. And that was what the family needed. They get the best of that moment and that's what they need. So um this is the deeper thing that's more important than the silly wacky furry stuff. yeah
1: it's interesting though because I know and we talked about previously you had this license to create the personality of the fanatic so you kind of imbued him I'm assuming it's a him uh you kind of imbued the fanatic with his life but I'm wondering if by playing the fanatic and engaging with people what maybe that character taught you about yourself
0: yeah I, uh it, it, on a on a funny side note, I think probably the the correct pronoun would be they
1: they okay probably yeah it makes good sense yeah, <laughs> but, yeah.
0: but i'm fine I'm fine with him i don't okay, I don't okay. have requirements in that regard, so which which is what we, we need. want to make
1: sure we get the pronouns right
0: yes, correct. so um well, I think you mean know, what it learned about what I learned about myself or what I learned about
1: yeah about yourself I mean i mean yeah, you you're, well, there's I, like a Dave Raymond, I'm assuming inside the suit, and what did you maybe reflect back on?
0: Well, most importantly I learned how to take credit and and look I the fanatic is 43 going on 44 years mm-hmm. of existence. Uh, I was there for 16 but still look at him and feel a part uh of me inside there. Of him. Yeah. And I realized that um that there were things I did that I had skill sets that in the beginning I wasn't aware of that I give myself credit for. I mean my my mother was deaf. Mm-hmm. Uh from the age when I was three and she was twenty nine, she she went from a hearing woman to a deaf woman, and mm. and I my ability to commute non, communicate non verbally and how important that was. I had well over ten thousand hours of practice.
1: Yeah, what a fascinating part of the development of that and being able to sh- 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 nonverbal non verbal communication as a mascot.
0: And, and yes, and so then what that led to me. But my joke that I tell was my dad. I used to follow my dad around and watch him speak. And, and also, whether it was in the locker room on a Saturday before a game, or if it was after a win or a loss, or at all the community events, and I used to love to go with him. And then he would say to me, uh, um, hey, David, you at the age of 13, you have this natural ability to communicate with people and people older than you. That's, that's really a marvelous skill that you are going to be able to engage to help you be more successful in life. Now sit down and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, my time and father, place for everything. Yeah, and, you know, I, a little bit of Howard Stern's dad into that. <laughs> yeah, And then my, then my uh, dad was the one who got me a job where I had to be a mute for for sixteen years. And strategic. Oh, I see. I see what you were doing. Um. <laughs> so all of that stuff kind of came out. The the serendipity of of those things. Yeah. Um. The uh, the luck um of access that I had. Uh, and then this 10,000 hours of practice. Where now, as I as I actually go to school for stagecraft, heroic public speaking in in Lambertville, they are the best in the world of this. And I go in and take coursework on stagecraft. And I've recognized that my natural ability for nonverbal, um, paired with a with a crafted style and shaping of a verbal, is the way you engage an audience and get them to feel, act, and and uh, think differently. And And that's and that has all come from this performance work. Yeah. And it's what it's the beauty of what I teach performers is that, you know, forget about whether you could ever have a job, you know, being a full time mascot performer. You're learning skills that are going to make you a better person and make you better in whatever uh, opportunity that you take advantage of for, you know, for your uh, employment. But
1: let's talk about this is a natural segue because you took all this experience as the fanatic and you've kind of built yourself <laughs> a furry empire out of it right <laughs> i mean you you operate the mascot hall of fame um you run a mascot boot camp um, you have designed literally hundreds of mascots for all kinds of things right teams and companies mm-hmm. and brands and can you talk a little bit about that process? Of how do you how do you produce an effective design? What goes into that process? As you shape this now clearly integral part of uh, the team's communication and interaction with fans, what what are some of the essential questions and what does an organization need to know?
0: Well, I think the 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 thing that gets in the way is is what is it? What does it look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's we are we are most of us are visually very stimulated. visual, sure. And so we want to know. Well, what's it going to be? And 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 I'll tell you the synopsis of almost all of my first meetings with clients. Hey, Dave, what's it going to look like? What's it going to be? And I'll and I'll say, I have no idea. Yeah, I have zero idea. And their response is, "Why did we hire you? <laughs> this is the worst ever hire ever." <laughs> yeah, which is the answer to your question. Yeah, I you know what it needs to be. You just haven't had a process that gets you there. We
1: haven't distilled it.
0: So that's the first thing is I tell my clients. If I make this thing something that I like and born out of my head,
1: mm.
0: what difference is that? I I'm not you. I, I as much as I may yeah. know about your brand or your city or your company or your team, um, I'm still not gonna know it the way you do it and the way your owners and the what is from your history. So the very first step is to forget about what it's gonna look like and tell me your authentic story. Where did this let's? Let's use it as a, as an analogy for a team. Where did this team come from? Mm-hmm. What was the ownership? Um, what's your history? Then, then how does that connect with your city? Um, and and who is your city? Yeah. Um, not not what is your city? Who is it? And uh, who are the people that that live here? What drives them? What are the urban myths and legends? What what a um, what's the truth and legacy of of the um, of the team and and. The fans, yep. and then once you start to tell that story, you know I get them to whiteboard this together, and you and there might be three whiteboards: the 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 team's history, uh, the the sports um, history of the sport, uh, the city's history, the community, and we just fill those whiteboards with phrases, thoughts, uh, bullet points, mm-hmm. and, and then I go. Your job is to tell a story that ha- that cements itself in this beginning. And it moves from the beginning to when this character arrives, however it arrives. It's either found, does it have a savior, a beneficiary, a benefactor? And then you, once you get the bones of the story together, like any great editing, you go in and write it and put in the drama. And maybe there's a little bit of myth that you really seize on like it was factual. Mm-hmm. Because people believe in that myth. And then you write this paragraph of a story that is the that's the second draft mm-hmm. of, of probably 10 drafts, because that goes to a designer who uses that information to inspire them to create the visuals because the visuals will come out of that. We created a character for the team that uh Dale Earnhardt's family and Dale Earnhardt, while he was live, bought. It used mm-hmm. to be the it used to be the Canapolis Bo Weevils. <laughs> it was it was a Phillies affiliate. And when they they changed the name to the the intimidators right the okay of the course yeah. and then we created a character whose name ended up being dub because w win w dub <laughs> and this is authentic right so yeah, yeah. The southern draw and how important wins are yeah. to the intimidator yeah and we made the character's face look like the front end of an old buick very subtly but you go yeah. oh here's here is the front nose piece. Here's where yeah, the, light the headlights. Comes. Yeah. And then we, the only part of the racing gear the character wore was, um, racing boots. So all of that came from telling the story of Dale Earnhardt, his history, what he loved, what he despised, what was important to him and his community, and so you get the culture with the with the uh, southern draw.
1: But it speaks to that power of narrative and story, right? It's not just a character; it's everything that goes along with that this isn't a process that i made
0: up dave it's it's what disney did mm-hmm. uh what the muppets did mm-hmm. and they, they um i mean when disney was trying to sell the idea of a feature length cartoon to his board he was getting shot down and what he won them over by telling them you are going to embrace and love these cartoon characters not like a two minute um interstitial or or beginning to uh you know a live action feature you're going to love them the way those characters that are live on screen that you love them we're going to be great storytellers and so Bambi you know sees his mother killed by a hunter and right and the parents are going wait a minute this is a Disney moment What? yeah yeah. well that but then the kids are like oh my gosh I want to see what's going to happen to Bambi I because they relate to oh they see themselves yes so so this isn't this is old news right but the Phillies did it We're fine for different purposes. Exactly. I did, you know, the Phillies did it by just because I think of a leadership and belief and, and mm-hmm. all the the right scenario. A lot of Malcolm Gladwell, either tipping points or outliers, fits mm-hmm. into that. And then what I did was I deconstructed what they did when I had a chance to reflect on it and I realized I had to sell it. Yep. Um, just because I was there doesn't mean I could do it. You authentically teach the story by having things happen as you roll out the character organically.
1: Yes. And you're not sitting in a classroom and saying, This is now the history of this mascot. Everybody learn it and go forth and do it, right? Everybody, it's almost like um, breadcrumbing.
0: Now that they can say, why the heck? Which is what yeah, they said yeah. about Gritty. Why the heck does he look like that? You said you wanted to attract children. It looks like he <laughs> wants to eat children. Uh, you know, <laughs> Stephen King's the only one that's happy. We, you know, what are you doing? And then you tell, then you go, well, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Didn't you know, have you seen our players? Nobody takes a bath in this sport. Um, nobody shaves.
1: Right. And all of our For players... those of our... For those people who are out there going, what the hell are they talking yeah. about? This is uh this is the mascot gritty. Of the Philadelphia Flyers, who was um, it has to be one of the most successful mascot launches in the history of mascots.
0: Yes, and that's because of what the Flyers, what the Flyers and their fearless um, creative team did. Yeah, um, I can take credit for. Here's the process. Yeah, if you, if you do these things and you do it authentically, which I can't do for you, I can approve and say, hey, that's great." And then I might add on, "What about? Did you think of?" Yeah, because of my experience, because uh, another client did this. Right. And then they take it and then we got it, Dave.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: That was pretty much we got it. And then yeah. I went to the I went to the grand opening, the rollout at the Please Touch Museum. And um I was I I, I knew th- I knew the design that they had approved. So I knew what it was going to be, but I kind of let them do their thing. And then I came in and, and um I told them expect negative reaction and they showed me the first tweet was um he sucks. I hate him. <laughs> And so the boss Sean Tilgers looked at it and went, "Well, don't share that. That's not creative." Yeah. And then I'm like, well, "Okay, well, I'm a little nervous." But then they did. They 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 walked that line well. Uh, they gave Gritty a voice through social media first, and that's was truly the tipping point. Was when we were, you know, all of Philadelphia was saying, "This is a bad idea. This is horrible. Here they go again. This is a right. mess." But in 48 hours, when it totally they, flipped. Yeah, the Penguin from from pittsburgh said lol okay in a dismissive tweet (laughs) and then gritty gritty wrote back sleep with one eye open tonight bird (laughs) and
1: and that was it and it it was totally embodied philadelphia
0: john oliver in the on his show that night said with with and i'll clean up without the expletive deleted (laughs) said oh my gosh gritty he just said hello and laughed and you went right to murder. He went right to the murder button. And we went, yeah, that's yes. Philadelphia, man. That's
1: Philadelphia right there. <laughs> What's interesting to me now too, though, so we've talked about you you, know, you start inside the costume, then you start building the costumes for other organizations and do that. Now you're sort of taking it to even a further level and are proselytizing the importance of happiness and fun in workplace environments far beyond sports. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution and where you're going from here?
0: Yeah, I, well, the evolution came from recognizing this process. When I see what I was, ne- I never ha- had a boss. I don't even have a resume, Dave. I've never had to- What was the word? res what? what? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but so who am I to talk about the the corporate corporate culture? Mm-hmm. Well, because I'm working with all these folks. And when we go through this process, it's cathartic. You hear the story, and then you start to measuring that with their brand. A lot of my clients go into a brand reset phase after they do this because they say, hey, we've, we've discovered some things that are important to us that we're not leaning into. And so I would sit in on some of those meetings. They'd hire me to come in and be another mind in the room. And I really got to understand from a different perspective what it was like in there. So I started to see that the same process in valuing a character brand in valuing this concept of, uh, and I'll use the word that, that we find kickback on because of misunderstandings, misunderstanding is how to leverage fun as mm-hmm. a force, uh, in your development of culture and including it. Um, and, and that's where it started. And then I got involved in a, in a business where I was asked to be and became a founding owner of the fund department, which mm-hmm. was a team building company in 2007 when we rolled it out. And we immediately had success, but our clients were saying, well, David, you're kind of the expert. So when we have this team building event in the middle of the afternoon, we need you to tell our employees why we're doing this, because you're the expert, we're trusting you. And then I would go in and start to explain why the Fanatic was good and why they invested in the Fanatic and what we're doing and what it taught us about moving fun from the known commodity or in the, the known Sector which is off time vacation, right. and taking it into an unknown sector where we say powerful fun uh, lives, and and that in our in our minds that's the evolution of happiness that I went through, and we want everybody to see how uh, happiness can be evolved and practiced and trained, and that's what's really happened, and and so because of the speaking, the keynote has been our lead in. We mm-hmm. we teach leadership these lessons we we teach em, employees um, we do workshops but the keynote is always the first step because it sure tell, tells the tells that's the baseline, yeah and, and tells tells what why I'm an expert in yeah. this why when I listen. didn't do I didn't do research at Harvard like Sean acre did but I lived and breathed it yeah and
1: yeah. and that, well, you did and your that, research it just wasn't at Harvard
0: right it was just like, and and I and truly um I discovered the real value when I had serious life challenges where um, I was in a hopeless state and I Mm -hmm. was ready to quit as a fanatic. And then because I opened up my eyes and recognized that when I was the fanatic, I got this break from the misery I was going through, the death of my mother, the Mm -hmm. dissolution of my marriage, all at the same time. My mom uh, got taken by the same brain cancer that took Tug McGraw and, and many, many, many Mm-hmm. others with melanoma with with glioblastoma mm-hmm. and and uh, you know I was going through a horrific time and the fanatic was my savior it, because I got this break the analogy is that's how we can use fun in our lives not only to be better to be healthier to be happier but also as a tool to be sharpened and practiced so that when the brutality of life visits you you can use something that's counterintuitive i'm going to use fun now right to help me and that's that is the jump from known to unknown how can fun save your life and and uh, what's great is especially where we are now after the post pandemic yeah and the great resignation and yeah. people's unwillingness to deal with any struggle at work that they don't have to deal with and it is being used now um and i'm very very busy speaking because it's about self care it's about wellness it it isn't about marketing or branding and and that's what I, that's what I really appreciate is feeling like I'm getting a chance to help people do bigger things.
1: And I feel like this moment is such an important one for what you're trying to share with people, right? Because I think, you know, it's there's so much in the conversation today about the negative aspect. You talked about the brutality of life, and it seems like it's very prevalent. Like we're all coming out of the pandemic right now, and there's so much conversation about loneliness and, you know, cynicism and divisiveness. and. Mm frustration and so on. Do you feel like it's harder for us to have fun now when you engage with people versus maybe previous cycles when you were bringing out this kind of enjoyment in fans? And is the is your message being received in a much more gosh, we really need this right now mm-hmm. type way?
0: Well, uh, so the answer to your question is is yes and yes. Yes, yeah, okay, it, yeah. is, it is much harder for us to value it because mm-hmm. because of the same if they had gone through the process I went through uh, in real time, they, yeah. would, they would have seen it the way I did it and they wouldn't question it. It just, mm-hmm. okay, I, I got it. I'm in.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and I wasn't thinking about outward facing. This is working for me. Right. And as I've gone through this maturing of, the me- of delivering the message, I recognize I needed confidence that I believe that others, this would help others. And yeah. then what happens when you are any type of presenter if you're doing it outward facing and everything that you do has been from the focus of them and maybe just one person so that you identify this is for you. And then they come back and say, it, they'll say one of two things. It's either validation. I've been doing this just, you know, frankly, by what I thought was instinct. Now I realize how important it is. I'm going to not discount it. And the others would say, I've really been struggling and I never thought of it this way. And I'm going to try this. And then those people get back to me and say that it worked. Um, and then you recognize how people are hurting. And when you're we're in this hopelessness phase, suicide becomes a, an answer, yeah. a real answer. You don't think of it as we do today. right? Um, so if, if I were to have done what I was thinking about doing, my legacy would have been with all the people around me. I can't believe that David did that.
1: Yeah, David did. Right? Yeah. And,
0: and what you realize, it, it become, you, your job as psychology before positive psychology was, their job was to make the miserable less miserable because they thought that would be great because it gets them out of that hopelessness and gets them into an area where at least they can contribute a little bit. And what Martin Seligman did at the University of Penn, he's the father of, of positive psychology, mm-hmm. he started seeing these outlying dots on the graphs to try to find out how they could help the miserable. And they, he finally said, what is that? that that outlier. Who are they? Why are they not in this graph? And they started to see that there were people that were naturally chemically fitted to be doing this without thought. And then once they started studying them, they started to see what they were doing and how the less miserable could adopt that. Because you got to get them out of hopelessness first, and then you can treat them in a way, um, whether it's psychiatric and with medication.
1: Yeah. Or whether it- it's
0: just if you know intervention mentally
1: it's interesting for me to hear you say that you felt like it was instinctual what you were doing when you know when we go back to the first part of the conversation it was all about you know working with the Phillies front office say okay well that works so let's try a little bit more of that I mean and you know okay well that 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 totally didn't work so we'll make sure we do less of that I mean, there's a there's a study to it. I mean, it, it's kind of silly, right? I mean, we're talking about you know jump over, you know, fall on your face more, right? You <laughs> yeah. know, that works. But I mean, there is a real process that goes into understanding how you take the steps to create the environment that does bring out positive psychology yeah. and right. the moments that people can lift themselves out of the challenges that they're facing.
0: And I, I think so. the The, uh, the prescription is a two step for me is. Is if you believe in my message, just keep your eyes open and, and you'll see it. Yeah. Um, the 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 study when you when you shop for a car, even in today's world, you're looking for all the particulars of that automobile that you want to make yours, and you spend all this time doing it. And when you finally get the car that you think nobody else has, you drive out on the street and see five other cars exactly like it, because you've had you've been looking at it. Been and trained. Times, so yeah. the power of fun is everywhere, whether it's in a sign that that says. Um, if if you're going the correct speed we're going to reward you uh you know with a with a drawing you're we've yeah. captured your license plate and we're going to give you a reward for going the speed limit as opposed yeah, to yeah. say we capture you you're going to get caught speeding yeah. that's a power of fun um, yeah. personifying a a broken down escalator with a sign that says i'm really sorry i'm not feeling well today <laughs> I know, <laughs> right. I know you depend on me I know,
1: right? to you give know, you a lift.
0: In, yeah, in, yeah. Inspiring people to put cards to get well cards for the yeah, aspect. Yeah. That's right. the power fund. So you start seeing it around you. Okay. So now you see how it can be employed, employed anywhere and everywhere. Cause that's right. the universal part of it. Then you go, okay, well, what's my part in it? And that's the intentional activities because the science says, you know, we're in charge of 40% of our mood, whether we know it or not. Yeah. And it's intentional activities, things that you do intentionally. To be happy or not—that's you can be intentional about either. But if you're intentional about being happy, then you start to develop your own personal intentional activities that are, you know, personal to you because we're all different. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I love skydiving. You're scared to death of heights. Our intentional activities to boost our mood are going to be different. But it's but imp-
1: it, it's something that you need to focus on. It is yeah. not something that just happens. Yeah. Instinctually.
0: It, what's a couple things that are incorrect in the lexicon of happiness? you you do not search and find happiness. it's It's your active participation mm-hmm. to build happiness and And yes, money can buy happiness. Uh, that's the second mistake because if you're investing in in um in uh, moments of joy and experiences rather than stuff, mm-hmm. uh, Dan Gilbert from Harvard, who is one of the leading voices in positive psychology today, he said that Tesla that you just bought uh, has does not have the good sense to go away. It's going to be with you long enough to disappoint you, uh, you you're, which is great. But your your vacation yeah. that you just took has the good sense to end. Yep. So then it is a memory that you can recall uh, joyfully for the rest of your life. So so money can buy your happiness if you're investing in the, in, in the memories and in the experiences. And um, you, you can't search for happiness. It's, it's in your heart. It's in your soul. And it requires you to activate the part of your heart and soul to value it. Yeah. Just for vacation. It's not just for off time. It's for the most difficult times in your life. And that, that's where it's you become... store
1: that up almost as a battery against those moments.
0: And that's a wonderful analogy. And, and I, and I, as I mentioned to you, when we talked before the podcast, when you reach brilliant stupidity, you're at the highest level of
1: success where you've, <laughs> where you've learned to really I got the back value... end of that one down. I got to get the front end yeah. of that one down. That's, that's right. where well, we're going. It is self-serving, you know, because
0: I. <laughs> mostly everybody said they paid you to be stupid. Um, yeah, but I was really good at
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, on that note, Dave Raymond, two things before I let you go. First of all, if somebody wants to go explore a little bit about more about what you're doing now with the power of happiness and the power of fun, where should they go online to be able to investigate that a little bit more?
0: Well, and I'll either reward them for doing this. Go to dot DaveRaymondSpeaks.com. Mm-hmm. DaveRaymondSpeaks.com. And, uh, Dave, Dave Raymond Speaks.com. And if you don't mind being bothered once a month, five 30 on the last Friday of the month, sign up for the newsletter. And when you do that, you'll get a free chapter of my book, the power of fun. So, and that is the repository of everything I'm doing now that I'm thoroughly passionate about is there. And there's a link to, if you are looking for character branding, there's a link right from that site to go to our character branding site. So it, it there is you the go. It's all
1: right there. Stop. Yes. All right. So that's number one, the power of uh, DaveRammonSpeaks.com. Um, the second thing we're going to do is we're going to put you now in the lightning round. <laughs> Dave, I need quick responses to five questions. Are you ready? Yes. Go. Okay. In three words or less, describe the smell from the inside of a mascot costume on a humid August day game.
0: Perspiration tea.
1: Okay. The ba- <laughs> the ba- <laughs> what baseball player was the most fun to antagonize?
0: Um... Dave Parker,
1: Dave but there Parker. are a few others. Okay, Dave but Dave Parker, Parker is the first one that came to mind. Yeah. Okay. What's the most tragic mascot design you've ever seen? <laughs>
0: uh, uh, Puffy the Taco.
1: Puffy the Taco. Gotta look that one up.
0: He has uh, he has a head that's made of lettuce. <laughs>
1: that that says it that pretty much says it all. Uh, what's the most important piece of advice for someone considering a uh, future as a mascot?
0: Um. Be able to move and dance in an entertaining way.
1: Okay. Know. Lastly, Dave Raymond, what do you do for fun?
0: <laughs> uh, I walk my dog Flint every single morning.
1: It's amazing. Is, It's a great moment. I do the same thing. Dave Raymond, uh, it's been so, um, You know, this conversation went in ways that I wasn't wholly anticipating. So that always is the hallmark of a really enjoyable conversation. So thanks so much for the time.
0: Your pleasure. And it it takes somebody to be able to steward that conversation. So thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to this ADC Partners podcast. For more information about ADC Partners, please visit our website at adcpartners.com.